And my junior year, I get called into the guidance counselor's office. And he said, where were you your freshman year? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, there's no grades for your freshman year. I'm like, well, I was home tutored. I tell him the story. He looks it up and he's like, as far as we're concerned, you weren't even here your freshman year. You, there's no grades. They were never registered. You're going to have to repeat your freshman year. We're all about turning a crappy situation into something positive. A quarter million dollars of credit card I debt. still remember the day when no one turned up. Throw it in the garbage and start from scratch. I could give myself a chance. So I started something. I mean, I think that counts as from poop to gold. <laughs> our sponsor for this episode is our 14-day video script challenge. Yes, we are sponsoring our own show. Yes, we are. <laughs> Welcome back to From Poop to Gold. I'm Benton Crane, your co-host and the CEO of Harmon Brothers. And today on the show, I have a guest with me. I have David Nagel. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks for having me, Benton. It's a real pleasure and honor to be here. Now, David is the author of the best-selling book, The Millions Within. Tell us about that, David. Well, the book is, is really, you know, it's interesting. When I wrote the book, I was having trouble coming up with a title. And I was with a friend of mine that I had coached in their business uh, to over seven figures. And we were sitting around, we were having dinner, and I just threw this around the, to the table that everybody that was there knew me. I said, what do you think I do best? I'm looking for a title for this book. And it went around to several different people. And Suzanne said, you, you help people find the millions within. And I was like, that's the name of the book. So the book is really about self-identity, um, how to increase your self-esteem, how to create the life that you want, how to create the income that you want, and to do it in a way where it's in harmony with a person's values. Um, and it's based on spiritual law or universal law, if you will. Gotcha. So it, even though it has millions in the title, it's not just about being a millionaire. It's, it's about manifesting it's about whatever you want in life. Tell us about what you do uh, professionally today, David? So what I do is I'm basically a mindset and strategic coach for entrepreneurs. Um, I've been doing that for over 20 years. Uh, and the, the, the way that I got involved with it was I had been working on myself. I was a high school dropout, really kind of directionless. I got married, had two children right away in my early 20s, uh, created a situation where I couldn't take care of them. And life was just getting worse. Like the car was repossessed. We filed bankruptcy. We had to move to a bad neighborhood. You know, it was just a horror story. And I learned through a process of trial and error how to change me because I, there was no internet in 1989, right? So I couldn't go back to school and I was working six and a half days a week. So I started changing my attitude and consequently my income started changing very quickly. I went from 20,000 a year to 62,000 a year. I kept working on myself. I was going to seminars. I was reading books. I was reading biographies. I was learning everything I could. I was working very hard and I got promoted from a truck driver to expanding this company across the country. And in the meantime of doing that, other people were coming to me and asking my advice on business. And I was giving them my advice I and mean, their businesses were exploding. So I'm like, I might really have something here. And I decided to start my own business. And I was helping people basically with the mindset issues that were causing the blocks that were keeping their businesses stagnant or not even getting off the ground completely. And it, it was through a process of doing that. I became a, a professional speaker, um, a published author, you know, a, a coach. Um, and, and that's really the core of, of my business today. That's amazing. I want to dig. I want to dig even deeper into this, David. So uh, many of our listeners know that I am a high school dropout as well, and so I uh, I already feel a, a kinship with you. Yeah. Let let's uh, let, let let's talk about that for a second. So so let's go back to high school. Tell us about your decision to walk away from kind of 
you know, what the traditional path or what everyone tells you, you know, you're supposed to do? What, what went into that decision? Well, everything was, everything was kind of normal, so to speak, until I was about 13 and my parents got divorced. So I was born and raised in Chicago. In 1976, we moved to Phoenix because my dad got a job out there. Um, two years later, we're moving back to Chicago, just me, my mother, and my brother, because my parents were getting divorced. And I'm here I am going to start high school. Um, my mom, the divorce, my mom did not do well with the divorce. She went off the deep end and really kind of disappeared for like three years. We, we were really raising ourselves. So that's like a really critical time in your development and now you're kind of on your own. Yeah, I've got no guidance. I got no, I have no guidance. I'm involved, you know, I had some, I, I remember standing in line registering for my freshman year and one of the coaches grabbed me and he's like, you're a big guy. Um, I was 5'10 in my freshman year. I mean, I wasn't heavy or anything, but I was one of the tallest kids in my freshman year. So they grabbed me for football and wrestling. And I was like, cool with that because I played football in seventh and eighth grade. So I, I liked it. I, I was cool. In wrestling, I was wrestling at 165 pounds, broke my knee, and I was out the rest of the year. I had to literally be home tutored because I was on crutches. The school I went to was an inner city school. You had to go up and down stairs with crutches. It wasn't a good thing. So I'm going along, not really doing very well. And my junior year, I get called into the guidance counselor's office. And he said, where were you your freshman year? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, there's no grades for your freshman year. I'm like, well, I was home tutored. I tell him the story. He looks it up and he's like, as far as we're concerned, you weren't even here your freshman year. You, there's no grades. They were never registered. You're going to have to repeat your freshman year. And I was already struggling. I was not doing well. I was cutting class, lots of, lots of problems. And I just said, screw this. I'm out of here. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing this again. I'm not going another year. My home life was horrible. Um, the only thing that was working for me was I was working. So when I would get out of school, I would go to work. And I worked several different jobs. I even sold, I even bought and sold cars and fixed them up and sold them on my own. So I'm like, I can do this on my own. I don't, I don't need school. And it was never in our ideology growing up that we would go to college. Like it was never, nobody ever said, Hey, this is where you're going. This is what you're doing. I didn't come from that kind of a background. So it really wasn't an option. I didn't even consider it as an option. And I hated school so much. I just didn't want any part of it anymore. So that's when I decided to go out and work. But I found out that, you know, I didn't have any skills. So I joined the army. I was in the army for about a year. I came out of the army and I was an MP in the army. Um, so when I came out, I found out, well, I could go be a cop, uh, but that really did not look good because... Is that what MP means? Military police. Okay. Yeah, military police. So I was military police in the army. And when I came out, the only thing I was qualified for was to do that. It was... It was um, it was not a good career. It just was not for me. So I'm like, I'm not doing that. The only thing left was driving a truck. So I did that and I drove a forklift for, for several years. And I kept increasing my responsibility without increasing my skill sets or my pay or my ability to, to have a wife and children and support them, which was tanking my self-esteem. Right, right. Talk to me for a minute, you know, given, you know, the current events, uh, that, that the world is experiencing today. Um, I'd like to dive in a little bit more into your thoughts and that decision around not becoming a, a police officer. And of course, you know, th this episode probably won't go live for a few weeks or, um, or, or possibly even a couple of months. So for our listeners, the context of what's going on right now is the George Floyd situation. Uh, protests all over the country going, going on around that. Uh, the black the Black Lives Movement is um, is, is catching a lot of um, uh, a lot of momentum and a lot of steam right now, um, and and of course a byproduct of that is that I'm sure being a police officer right now is probably a 
uh, a pretty hard, stressful job, uh, I would imagine. Um, so I, I'd love to hear your kind of thinking that went into that decision years ago. So I think what the, the reason that caused me to say no to it was when I was, when I was in the Army, I witnessed somebody being killed, and I was very much involved in a bombing that took place at Rhinemain Air Base. So what, literally on my way over to Rhinemain Air Base to get my station, uh, the embassy was bombed. And what happened was they took, um, they took, so when you go there, and I didn't know this in the 80s, right? So, I mean, I had no idea what was going on in the world, right? I'm just a kid, I'm ignorant, and, and I joined the army, and I'm in for a huge wake-up call going overseas, which I requested, by the way. So I, we, before we go, we're told that they have these, these places like in, um, uh, in Germany, like bub, uh, pubs and, and bars and taverns and stuff like that. Some you can go to, some you can't go to. And the reason you can't go to some of them is because they're known terrorist hangouts. So they're on a blacklist, right? And they're listed. They're listed at your post. You can't go to these places. This guy who is Air Force police, because the Rhinemain Air Base uh, was, was Army and Air Force. Mm -hmm. Air Force police goes to one of these places. Um, this woman picks him up. She tells him that she's going to take him home and have sex with him. He's in her car or his car, whatever, and she kills him in the car. She's a terrorist. They put a, a, a male in his uniform that looks like him. They put a bomb in the car. They drive it onto the airbase because he's got all the credentials to get on. There's a bomb under the car. They park it in front of the embassy uh, on Rhine, Maine. It was supposed to go off at nine o'clock in the morning when all these generals were coming in for this big meeting, but it went, it, it went off at the wrong time. It went off at 3 a.m. So they shut the base down. When they shut the base down, the new, some of the new recruits, depending on what your, what your qualifications were, were shipped to other places where you could be a benefit. So I was shipped to East Berlin. And I was working at basically a checkpoint, Charlie. And they told us that if um, if somebody gets across the wall, you could help them. But until they do, you can't. We can't do anything. We could just sit there and and watch, and that's it. And they said, "Listen, people get gunned down here all the time. Like this every Berlin Wall, we're, we're yeah, 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 yeah. This is 1986, and I'm there, and I have like I have no concept of what they're telling me is real. You know what I mean? Like you're hearing it, but you just have you have no concept." And I see this family gunned down and killed in the street trying to get over the wall. And it was like Goodness. PTSD. So, so, so they're, they're in East Berlin. They're trying to get to West they are, Berlin. Yeah, they and are. before they get to a point where you can even he help them, they get gunned down correct, right in front correct. of your eyes. Correct. Oh, correct. my goodness. Correct. So, so between those two things happening and then a lot of different things that I was learning along the way about the state of the world and, and what we were going through. When I came back, the, one of the first things I did was I hooked up with my girlfriend and we ended up getting married. And it was like, okay, now what are you going to do for a living? Because when I first came back, I started working in a warehouse. So I'm like, well, let me go, let me think about becoming a cop. And I started looking into it and I'm like, you know something? I don't want to go to work every day having my wife and kids not know if I'm not, if I'm going to come home or not. I mean, what these police officers go through is very real. You, you never know. I mean, in the best of neighborhoods, you never know who you're pulling over or what you're walking into. When, when I went through my training, one of the worst things that you could ever walk into was a domestic violence situation. Like we had more domestic, domestic violence 
um, training than basically anything else because so many police officers are killed uh, during domestic violence assaults. So that was like that and the pay was much lower than I was actually making working in a warehouse. So I was like, okay, I'm not doing this. I'm not, I'm not going to live. It it really didn't bother me as much as it did my wife, but I'm like, I'm not going to live with everybody being in fear if I'm going to come home in the morning, you know, after working a shift. So I decided not to do it. Okay. So, so you made that decision. So you're working in a warehouse now, uh, now, now take us to the next step in that, in that journey. Yeah. So the next step is that I get my stepfather works for Metropolitan Life Insurance. Now we're at 1988. I get a job there working uh, briefly. So I go through all the training. I'm selling life insurance. I'm actually doing pretty well. And I think this is a career I can do, right? Because I was, I was good at sales. I was actually making decent money, more money than I had made before. And then we had the, the savings and loan crisis that happened in the late 80s. The first thing people started dropping was life insurance policies. So it, I don't know how it is today, but at least then part of your income in life insurance was not just first year commissions. It was off the book of business that you built, you built for recurring commission that you got as long as the policy was renewed. And I had everything that I had built for two years just go down the tubes. So we ended up going bankrupt. We had our car repossessed, couldn't afford the apartment we were in, and I couldn't get a job anywhere for six months. I was like, the only thing I could find was driving a forklift. That was it. I was not qualified for anything else. And and had you guys had a kid at this point? Two. It was their second child. What does that feel like as a husband and father who you're trying to be a good provider and then you go through something like that? Like, What are the emotions and thoughts that go through your head? When, when I could not pay my rent, I had to go to the office and ask the guy if I could get out of the, uh, out of the, the lease. And he said no. So that meant we had to leave in the middle of the night. So we found another apartment in a bad neighborhood, like 57 miles away from where we were living. Um, thank God they didn't check our credit because we just filed bankruptcy and we had a, a car that was repossessed. We got this apartment. It was next door to a drug dealer that used to beat his wife on a regular basis, who happened to be the guy that ran our application to get in the apartment. So like, go figure, right? So it's, it's like a stroke of luck on one hand and it's like, oh my God, on the other hand. But my wife would call me at work and she would say, I got to take the kids to the park because they're fighting so bad over there. She's screaming her bloody murder. And every day I'm sitting down with a pen, a paper, a calculator, and I'm trying to figure out how do I go from 20,000 a year to 40,000 a year to get us out of here? And I can't figure it out. Um, and I'm doing other things. Like I was, I had a job on the weekends where I drove a truck, still didn't make enough money. Um, I bought, a, I bought an old uh, Chevy Suburban with a plow on it in the wintertime. I would come home, you know, in the middle of the night and I would plow gas stations, still didn't make enough money. I didn't realize I was also overspending at the time, which was, you know, I mean, I didn't have that, that maturity yet, but it was, you know, it was all my own creation. So I would come home sometimes literally in tears. I would sit in front of my house in tears before I would go in the house and I would think, how do I change this? I just don't know how to change it. And then a series of things happened that woke me up. One, I was sucked through a dam. Um, and that really kind of woke me up to the idea that we're not going to be here very long. Right. Wait, wait, you just said that nonchalantly, like no big deal, but you were sucked through a dam. Yeah. Right after my son was born, my second child, um, my wife and I got invited to go out on my uncle's boat for a day and I was going to do some water skiing. It was on the Illinois river around Marseilles, Illinois, and I had never been there before. But we really needed a break. Like we just, we were working so much that, you know, we had babies, like we just needed a break. So we go and 
I did not realize that it had rained the entire week before we went down there. So the river was almost at flood stage, but it was so wide, it was just smooth like glass. You really couldn't tell that it was moving fast. So I'm watching the boat. The boat's watching me. You know, we're going back and forth, whatever. I lose the rope don't get it back in time. And something tells me like to turn around and I look over my shoulder, I see this sign that says danger, stay clear 600 feet. And beyond that is a dam and it's a big dam. It's run by the Army Corps of Engineers, or at least it used to, it used to be. And I see myself going toward it. The boat takes off because they can't get me. I put my feet up because I think I'm, I don't want to hit my head on the concrete. And before I even get to the dam, I just get sucked under just like that. And I get sucked through it. So the sign was 600 feet away from the dam? The sign was 600 feet away from the dam. And by the time I turned around, I went past the sign and I was within the 600 foot zone. And somewhere before the dam, the, the, the undertow pulled me under. Oh, my goodness. And, and so it just shot you out like the, the overflow pipe or something. So it goes, so it's a gate that lifts up like this. The water goes under and then it's a, you know, it goes down on the other side of the dam. And it, that's what it did. It pulled me under. I had a life vest on, but I did not have enough time to really get like a lung full of air. I just went under. And honestly, at that moment, I thought I was going to die. I honestly thought it was over. And then I popped up on the other side and I'm like gasping for air. I lift my hands out of the water. All the skin is peeled on my hands because I came down this cement wall and I had all these deep puncture wounds on my body. My back was also broken, but I didn't know it because I had so much adrenaline running through me. I'm trying to get to shore, but I can't get there because the current's too strong. So it takes me around an island. And as I go around this island, I reach up and grab this branch and I'm holding onto this branch. I'm horizontal in the water. I'm probably only 15 feet from the island, but the current's so strong, I can't get there. And if I let go, it's going to spit me back out in the middle of the river. Two miles down in Ottawa, Illinois, there's another dam. So I'm holding on and I'm thinking to myself, God, please don't let me die today. Please don't let me die today. This, this vision of my son's face flashes on the screen of my mind. Britain, brand new little newborn. He was born in June. This is September. Um, I start to buckle, unbuckle my life vest one buckle at a time and buckle it around the branch because I don't know how much longer I can hang on. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm trying not to go into shock. I'm remembering the training that they gave me in, in basic training in, in the army. And I start having this conversation with God hanging from this tree. And I'm, I'm like, if I die right now, I've left my family with nothing but problems. And they're problems because I couldn't get myself to do the things that I should have done when I was a kid, finish school, you know, go to college, build a career, blah, blah, blah. So I said, God, if you let me live today, I'll find out why I couldn't do that. I will change that in my life. And then I'll spend my life teaching other people about it. I almost didn't remember I said that years later, but I, but I did. I, I, and I don't know where the hell it came from to this day. It was just there. Next thing I know, there's a guy on the island with a walkie-talkie, and he's going, stay right where you are. The Ottawa River Rescue's on their way up, and he's telling them, I've got him. I found him. He's alive. They get me in a boat. They're telling me, I can't believe you're alive. We never pull anybody out of here alive. Everybody goes through, die. I was one of two people that ever lived going through that thing. Uh-huh. The other guy was a paraplegic. So I'm in the, I'm in the emergency room, and there, the state police is there. The Department of Natural Resources is there. The Army Corps of Engineers engineers is there. There's all these people there. They're like, how did you survive this? I'm like, I have no idea. I, you know, I have a life vest on. That's about the best I can tell you. And I'm like, why? And they said, well, nobody ever survives going through this. 
The last person that went through that survived is a quadriplegic or paraplegic, something like that. Last year, we had a motorboat fail. Two guys on a motorboat went in. They got stuck inside the dam. We sent three firefighters down with scuba gear. All five died. So now all we do is open it up and let the body flush out. So they were amazed that I was alive. And they kind of put it into my mind that I should be amazed that I was alive too. So I started asking myself, why did I survive this? How come they people go through it every year and die and I didn't die? I must be here to do something, you know? And I also figured at 23 years old, it's a wake up call. Cause at 23, you think you're immortal. You know, you just don't, you don't think you're going to die. Your body's in great shape. You can basically do anything. It started waking me up that I better do something. So that, I think that's really what started the, the wheel spinning in. If I'm going to do something, it's going to have to be up to me. Nothing. You know, I, I think subconsciously I was waiting for something to change to say, Oh, here's your opportunity, David, you go do this. I didn't realize it was up to me that I was, I needed to be the person that actually made the changes to create a different opportunity to get out of my situation. So that's, that's kind of, you know, the, the crux of where the, the tide began to turn for me, so to speak. That was the, that was the point. That was the turn. That was the point. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Um, well, and, and as you know, David, this, uh, this pod podcast is the poop to gold podcast. And so thank you for, uh, for diving in and taking our listeners through, you know, the, through that journey that, that you went on, um, for our listeners who are going through their own, you know, their own crappy time, their own poop moment, uh, whatever it is, what piece of advice would you give them? Well, first of all, not to think that you're a victim to something because the biggest wake up for me was that I had the power to change my results. You know, after that, I went from 20,000 a year to 62,000. That happened in a month because I changed my attitude. Everything started getting better once I started realizing I was the problem. So I think the first thing is to accept personal responsibility for where you are. You know, if you can't change it, forgive it. Don't beat yourself up over it. Look for where you can do better and become the best that you can. And the other thing that I think of is I think people really need to spend time and understand who they are. Um, I don't think we really teach that to kids. You know, find out who you are, what you like to do, what you don't like to do, and spend your life cultivating that because I believe everybody has a purpose. And when you find out who you are, when you accept your own authenticity in the world, I think you meet your purpose head on. And, and knowing that purpose lights a fire inside of you. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Like once I realized what my purpose was, I never looked back. That was it. I love it. How can our listeners stay in touch with you, David? The Successful Mind Podcast. Just look it up. It's on all podcast platforms um, and they can get, you know, basically all my content for free right there. And if they want to know more, they can go to davidnagel.com. We have all different kinds of things there. Awesome. Um, so davidnagel.com or the Successful Mind Podcast. Correct. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show, David. It's been such a pleasure getting to know you. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been an honor. Thank you. And for our listeners, please make sure to like and share and subscribe, and we'll see you on the next episode. As entrepreneurs and small businesses, we all kind of reach that point where we know we've created something awesome and we want to share it with the world, right? Mm -hmm. And it's that very next step that can oftentimes be really intimidating or really scary, or you just don't know where to go next, right? And the beautiful thing about this 14-day script challenge is you get your hand held from, okay, you have this cool product, now let's go research and find the exact way to present it and message it to the world in a way that resonates and gets people excited and they're ready to swipe their credit card and purchase. And in the 14-day script challenge, you get the opportunity to go through that step-by-step -step with 
our writers who have done it dozens and dozens of times. Yeah, you actually watch us go through each of the steps ourselves and create it with a real client, a real product, and um, it's a real campaign that's out there that's been very successful. That's right. And the feedback that we've had on this thing has just been phenomenal. I mean, we get comment after comment and emails flowing in from people all over the world who have just uh, raved about the impact that this has had on their business. People tell us over and over again, it is just a huge value punch for the investment for this 14-day script challenge and, and really gave them the tool set they needed to walk through it and make it happen. And we've had dozens of students who have successfully taken the challenge, written their script, launched their ad campaigns, and driven success for their business. It's pretty amazing. For more information, go to hbros.co slash script. That's hbros.co slash script.